Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anthony Dworkin, I'm a Senior Policy Fellow here at ECFR and I'm standing in for this series' regular host, our director, Mark Leonard. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the challenging subject of European support for human rights. And with us to discuss that is Gerald Knaus, an ECFR Council member and chairman of the European Stability Initiative. And Gerald, over a number of years, has shown himself to be one of the most imaginative and at the same time practical-minded people working in the area of human rights. He's launched a series of initiatives that have been very influential in areas like migration, the rule of law, uh, the Council of Europe, and now uh, most recently looking at the European sanctions regime. So who better to assess where Europe's policy on human rights stands at what you can't deny is a difficult moment for human rights. Europe is faced internally with probably significant divisions on the subject of how far we should even be in the business of promoting human rights abroad, and externally with a a kind of rising tide of illiberalism, I think, around the world. Um, We've seen backsliding in Turkey and increasingly assertive Russia, and of course the United States, which at least in some ways we would have looked to as a partner, now under President Trump, doesn't look that way. So it's a difficult environment, but Gerald, um, do you see this as a moment where we should be kind of taking a step back and retrenching, or do you see still a a positive way for Europe to to be moving forward and having an influence here? Well, Anthony, I think uh, what we've seen in recent years is just a a reminder that whatever battles we've fought in the past have to be re-fought all the time. That any convention that has been reached even decades ago needs to be defended to be meaningful, that any institution can be captured and undermined, that any norm requires constant repetition with every new generation uh, to be vibrant and and, and effective. And I think this is a moment in which those who work on human rights actually have opportunities by being more strategic, more focused, and by aiming to actually have success uh, by carefully chosen campaigns on the big issues with partners in coalitions with a strategy to actually achieve. I mean, we'll come on in a few minutes to look at some of the areas where we could do that. But just sticking with the general picture, it does seem, doesn't it, as if the, the kind of the allies, the supporters, um, you know, are somewhat on the defensive and that the kind of international momentum is with countries uh, that are less interested in the idea of human rights as a factor in international politics? Well, when I was a student at university, the Berlin Wall came down and suddenly half of Europe, uh, the whole East, started to take human rights seriously. Uh, At that time, uh, apartheid came down. Uh, We've seen major breakthroughs following the Balkan Wars. So what we are seeing now is uh, a challenge to a lot of success of our generation. A challenge to our complacency that these things develop by themselves. We have today, not just in the US, also inside Europe, political forces, no longer just in the opposition, but in governments, that openly say that the age of universal human rights is over. Viktor Orban says it. Uh, Matteo Salvini and others have campaigned against international courts, even the European Court of Human Rights. 
Le Pen has called for the uh, limitation when it comes to the applicability of the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, we've had an Austrian party which now puts up the interior minister in a few years saying we need an Austrian Convention on Human Rights. So we have governments in the EU that challenge this consensus. And what we need against this background is first that other governments that want to defend those liberal values also form coalitions. And that the human rights community realizes that in this fight it is not a neutral observer that addresses everyone equally, but that it has to proactively find ways to ensure that certain norms continue to be norms, that shaming remains effective when some governments cannot be shamed. Viktor Orban and his treatment of asylum seekers uh, will not change just because we expose what he does. He wants it to be seen because he's proud of it. So what we need to do is find strategies to make shaming effective by building different forms of coalitions. And strategy is really about this. Strategy is always that you're in a weaker position, so you need, through thinking, through alliances, through coalitions, to become uh, more effective against opposition. So this is a kind of paradoxical idea, though, the idea that you can shame someone who's not ashamed of their uh, violation of human rights. How would you set about doing that? Well, we are going back to the debate that you had in the 60s when, for example, Amnesty, the first global uh, civil society human rights organization, came about. That you, you, and Human Rights Watch in the 70s, that you can, you can shame people who have shame, who have a sense of right and wrong, on the outside to do more. And if they act in a certain way, if they direct their attention to something, let's say there is a massive sustained abuse in a country, in a rich country in Europe like Azerbaijan that has oil. It's a small country, people don't pay much attention, but it has a huge number of political prisoners, people are being mistreated in jails, there is torture, there is disappearance, there is obviously political justice. In this situation, if we can shame the partners of Azerbaijan in Europe that interact with that regime to do something and they then treat the some representatives of the regime differently. That can be effective. Because in the end, norms will only be reinforced when people change behavior. If, uh, as we've seen in the last 15 years, an institution like the Council of Europe treats Azerbaijan as an honorable member, has election observation missions that say elections in Azerbaijan are free and fair, has a resolution rejected by majority vote that would say uh, they are political prisoners, and it's rejected. If we act as if there is nothing shameful happening, then the norm disappears. So we will not be able to shame President Aliyev or President Putin or, or many other human rights violators. But what we can do is strategically get others with a sense of shame to be more effective. Do you have a, an example of you know, a campaign that you can point to in recent years, even in this more difficult environment where you feel like there has been some progress? Lots of campaigns. Lot. i give you two examples. Uh, one really quick one. We've been writing for years. We started in 2012 with a report on caviar diplomacy on the corruption of the Council of Europe, which is the oldest human rights body in Europe. It will be celebrating 70 years next year. And uh, the body, uh, its parliamentary assembly, is composed of members that we elect in Britain, in Germany, in Spain, in Italy... They are parliamentarians, they go there four times a year. This body was captured, manipulated and turned against human rights defenders in the past decade 
through a sustained campaign of corruption. We wrote about this for five years. We formed alliances with some MPs, we formed alliances with other NGOs, with the media. And last year, the president of the Parliamentary Assembly, a Spanish conservative, twice elected president of that body, without opposition, had to resign. A huge investigation was done. A number of people were named and shamed. Uh, this is a beginning. It's not enough. The country at the early origin of this, Azerbaijan, has not yet been shamed. There has been no investigation. So now we need to ask the British government, the German government, the French government, in the committee of ministers where the governments are represented, to move against Azerbaijan, to have at least an investigation. You can't be bribing the referee for 10 years as a club, and then the only thing that happens is those referees cannot, uh, cannot be active for a few years. Uh, you, the briber, has to be punished or investigated. But that was a success and, and that worked. And it worked because the oxygen that we need for shaming to work, to be able to breathe, is attention. And by directing in a strategic way public attention to specific problems and suggest what needs to be done, you might make a change. Yeah, I can see that there, you know, that there is a real achievement there. But at the same time, the, as you say, Azerbaijan itself hasn't been significantly affected. The, and the European relationship with Azerbaijan, I think, in many people's eyes, would show the kind of limitations of human rights in the current environment. Azerbaijan is a country which is difficult to influence and which has something to offer. It has energy resources that Europe needs. Um, does that mean in that kind of context we simply have to sort of recognize the limitations of what we do and we can draw you know, is, is there going to be a, a European campaign to, to draw more attention even if there's a cost? Well, we are launching such a campaign because next year the Council of Europe will be 70 years. It's not just about Azerbaijan. It's about the very idea that a club that was set up for democracies has become far too comfortable with accepting illiberal behavior. You know, in the last three years, the Committee of Ministers, the Parliamentary Assembly, even the European Court of Human Rights has basically had no influence and did nothing on Poland. There's a huge amount of documentation on a crisis of the rule of law and independence of the courts. The Council of Europe did nothing. The Council of Europe is extremely weak and ineffective when it comes to Turkey. Worse, in the last session this autumn, the Council of Europe was ready to give in to Russian blackmail. You know, Russia decided uh, one and a half years ago to stop paying its fees unless the symbolic sanctions which can be and have been, in this case, very rarely applied to Russia, that its members of that assembly lost their voting rights after the invasion of Crimea, are not only lifted, but that in the future sanctions become harder to implement. Russia says, we only go back and we only pay our fees when the statutes are changed as we wish. And there was a serious debate to do so. Fortunately, and we campaigned on this very hard, there was no majority for it. So we think that an institution like the Council of Europe and think tanks, the media, um, experts, governments, need to pay attention that it can live up to its original role because we need it now more than ever. That this is possible requires attention and concrete ideas. One concrete idea we are pushing at the moment, the Committee of Ministers should very clearly say it will not give in to Russian blackmail. If Russia doesn't pay its fee by next summer, it will risk expulsion. This is serious. This is what the statutes require. It will launch a Mueller-type investigation with a prosecutor into the behavior of Azerbaijan in the last 10 years. 
and it will find ways to more effectively have symbolic sanctions and it will investigate how the European Court of Human Rights, for example, can be more effective in a situation like Poland today. All of this is an agenda that is progressive, forward-looking and achievable. And in the end, I suppose one of there are probably a couple of reasons why some countries are hesitant to go down this path. Um, one, of course, is the kind of risk of alienating countries that they want to work with politically or diplomatically, whether it's Azerbaijan or Turkey or whatever. Um, and the other risk is simply the idea that better to keep them in rather than push them out. You know, at least they've got sort of some dialogue or they're subject to the court as long as they're in the body, even if they're undermining its values a little bit while they're there. But for you, ultimately, it's more important to keep the norms, um, keep the substance of the norms, even if that does mean, for instance, pushing Russia out. Well, I don't think we should push Russia out, but I don't think we should make any concessions on the norms. And then if countries leave because they feel embarrassed, they feel under pressure, that is their choice. All the great heroes after, which the human, after whom the human rights prices in Europe are, are, are named today, you know, Havel, uh, Sakharov, were in countries that were outside those institutions, but appealed to their values. This is what we need to recapture. And by the way, we need the same inside the EU. We need to become much better at defending fundamental human rights inside the EU to avoid a scenario where one day we will discover that we have a Venezuela inside the EU as a member state. So, for example, we've campaigned very hard in the last half year on the EU, the Commission, member states acting, reacting, uh, strategically to the crisis of the rule of law in Poland. I mean, Poland in the last three years has systematically undermined the independence of its courts, from the ordinary courts to the constitutional court to the Supreme Court. We issued a paper in May where we said that this crisis is so serious, so well documented, and has revealed the weakness of all of our shaming strategies. You had reports from the Venice Commission, you had reports from the European Commission, the European Parliament, all the human rights bodies, but nothing worked. This has, the moment has come for the Commission to take the law in the Supreme Court of Poland to the European Court of Justice. We pushed for this hard in May. It happened in early uh, July. The European Court of Justice immediately reacted and issued an injunction so that the law in the Supreme Court, where Poland wanted to dismantle the last bastion of judicial independence, cannot be applied now. The judges walked back in and uh, a big assault on the rule of law for the moment was averted. But the reason for this success was that there was a very narrow focus on a very specific measure with a lot of explanation why this is not one of 50 problems for European leaders, but one of five. Because if in an EU member state the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary is undermined, the whole structure of recognition of judgments, of legal uh, certainty, disappears. The EU itself dissolves. So one needs to convince member states that it's not just idealism and add-on romanticism, but a strategic understanding of their national interest that makes them defend these norms. And then you have to point out how to do it. And uh, when it comes to the independence of the judiciary in Poland and elsewhere, using the European Court of Justice strategically, I think is by far the best way. And we've learned a lot of lessons from this. But the best way because it's not subject to the kind of political counter-reaction that you might get from a kind of initiative from the parliament or something? Well, the parliament uh, can issue uh, statements. 
uh, it can make declarations, uh, which is important. But uh, when the European Court of Justice says that there is a violation of the fundamental uh, provision in the treaty that the EU requires to exist independent courts that give uh, meaning to EU and national law, that this is not negotiable, then this has a, a value that goes beyond the political statement. Uh, and I think in the future we also need to get to the stage where member states overcome the diplomatic hesitancy and, for example, take each other to the European Court of Justice when they see a fundamental violation of uh, a fundamental uh, norm of the EU treaty. So if France and uh, you know, the Netherlands, both of which have leaders that have spoken very eloquently on the non-negotiable nature of the rule of law, Prime Minister Rutte, President Macron, if they would take a country to the European Court of Justice, which is uh, possible under the treaty, to say, we want to verify, because it's in our interest, as Europeans, that these norms apply everywhere, whether he, here we see a violation of a fundamental uh, principle of the rule of law, then it would also increase uh, the pressure and decrease the weight on the Commission, which we might need, because if the Commission has members in future from illiberal governments, the Commission might be paralyzed. Mm. So we need to think in new ways. Uh, we need to see this as a battle of ideas where we need to use our institutions because if they're not used, they just wither away. And when we need them, uh, they will not be there. So we've been talking already about the kind of divisions within the EU. And presumably this is a significant factor also in foreign policy, Europe's ability to stand up for human rights in its international affairs is surely more difficult at a time when you have you know, uh, several member states that really don't seem to back this agenda. How do you deal with that in terms of Europe's standing by human rights values in its relations with third countries? Well, we have a very concrete idea that, again, we think is strategically attractive because it requires only a number of governments and gets around the problem of the veto, which is to use sanctions on human rights violators from outside the EU to enter the EU as a tool of effective shaming, of reasserting norms, and of communicating what the EU stands for. I mean, these norms, you don't torture. You don't have political justice. You don't execute people extraterritorially. These norms are fundamental. Nobody can disagree with them. What we propose is that a number of EU member states gets together, and they don't even need to be in the EU. They can be European member states, the Brits, the Norwegians. If they share these liberal values, even after Brexit, Britain can be part of it. A number of states get together, establish a commission, and call it the European Travel Ban Commission, with uh, former judges of European right courts, ombudspersons, I mean, people with credibility. So it's an independent... An commission. independent body. It can be an NGO registered in the Netherlands, like the European Endowment for Democracy is registered in Belgium. And this body, which has a small secretariat, will evaluate every year candidates to suggest to the Council as human rights violators who shouldn't travel to Europe. I mean, the sanction is that we say that certain kinds of behavior are so shameful that we don't want these people to travel. It's about the message. It's about the story. It's about the research. And once a year at a big ceremony, you know, the Rotten Apple Award, you present 
This commission presents five stories of behavior, of norms, that we hold dear. And then the member states who set up this body take those names to the council, where we need unanimity. But then, if somebody says, I veto, which is always a possibility, the debate moves to why would a government of Europe want somebody where there is strong evidence, prison director, torture, somebody who's been uh, bring fraudulent justice, bringing dissidents to, 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 to jail, uh, mistreatment. Why would a European government defend those individuals to travel? So this is, this is a kind of anti-award, right? It's yes. the award you don't want to win. And the idea is to give more publicity to the names. Because at the moment there are a number of people who are on these travel bans, but we tend not to know who they are. Exactly. I mean, we know about the victims, you know, when you look at the Magnitsky list, for example. But we, I don't have a picture of the people who've actually been banned. Uh, and that is a problem, because what we want to be effective and what we want the journalists to uh, report is that certain kinds of behavior is unacceptable. So you don't need that many. You need strong evidence. You know, in the US, when Donald Trump bans somebody, you can't appeal it. But uh, in Europe, these uh, human rights bans have been taken to the European Court. They've been overturned many times for lack of good evidence. So what we propose is to get around the problem of unanimity, the problem of evidence, uh, due process. You know, you, you can even reach out to those individuals before you announce it. They can verify the facts if they want to. They can challenge them. But then you focus on a few cases and you get the, the, the most important commodity for shaming which is attention. We live in a world where we, we, see, we hear about atrocities, violations all the time, and very often we feel powerless. If we read too much about what's going wrong this morning in Yemen and in Sudan and in Ukraine and in, in Libya, as a reader, as a government even, we very often feel, well, what can we do? But if we feel that here is a specific abuse, there is something specifically we can do, we can say clearly that this is unacceptable. We feel actually emboldened. And what we need is this, the sense that our norms are defended by repeating them, by showing that we are prepared to act in realistic uh, ways that are in line with our core principles, like due process. And this is an idea, a rotten apple award that every year attracts the media attention to certain norms and that governments then can follow up with either travel bans, that's the easiest to agree on, or asset freezes or other sanctions, and they can issue once the principle is established, they can add more people if they want to. But the core is, until now, we've had no human rights violators from Azerbaijan ever told you can't travel to Europe or other countries in Eurasia. And this needs to change. Here is a way to change it. And I'm sure Britain, the Netherlands, France, Germany and others uh, would find this an attractive way to signal to the world at a time of presidents in the Philippines, in Brazil in Russia, even in the US, that undermine and disparage human rights, that no, Europe stands for certain norms. So in a way, what you're trying to do with this initiative is to sort of depoliticize the, the European sanctions regime. Because clearly the reason that sanctions don't get imposed on Azerbaijan is that not enough EU member states want to take an initiative that looks like they're punishing this country with which they have important commercial energy relationships. But you're saying if you find this out independently, then you're talking about a specific individual against whom there's this significant body of evidence. It looks less like a European initiative against Azerbaijan 
and more like Europe following the rule of law. Is it something like that? Or? Yes, you get the best of both, both worlds. If you, if you indict a prosecutor in a country who has a record of writing fraudulent, fake indictments that are obviously a joke and that regularly bring people to jail for political reasons, and you document this well, other prosecutors in that country will also get a message. You are affirming that certain kinds of behavior are never acceptable. You don't accept the excuse you know, that there is a, a, a bureaucracy because you take seriously that all countries, certainly in Eurasia, have accepted the Charter of Paris, all these core values. And, and you, you, you send a signal that this has consequences. But you do it in a way that is politically realistic. We will not have a, a long debate on putting dozens and dozens of people from a country on travel bans when then it's very hard to have the evidence, it will be overturned. No. You show that by drawing attention to this, you believe in those values. And, uh, and uh, you don't depoliticize because you say that at the center of politics, uh, these values should be respected. But you make it less a game of tactical geopolitics. It's not about changing a regime. It's about telling a prison director in Russia that mistreating prisoners is unacceptable. And when they die, you know, there might be a consequence and this kind of behavior is noticed. It's also a signal to victims, uh, but above all, it's a signal to the people in that position that Europe, the civilized world, will not get used to this. Obviously, there's a long debate uh, about do sanctions work? When do they work? Are they effective? Are they just symbolic? Do you see this as something which would really change behavior in some of these target countries or just simply a way of, you know, which is not in itself without value, a way of saying, you know, these are our values and we, stand, we draw a line here? I, I think the, the, the theoretical, historical, political science debate on whether sanctions work will never be resolved because sometimes they do, sometimes they don't and the, the causal relationship between doing something in Belarus like putting people on a travel ban and then a few years later there are no more political prisoners, it's very hard to establish. We don't know. But what we do know is that when we pay attention to abuse and when we want to affirm a norm, it needs to lead its strongest if it leads to some action. You know, when I go to church as a believer and I repeat every Sunday it's not that I make up new ideas. I repeat the same commandments, the same ideas of what, what, what ethical behavior is. And I do it every week to remind myself. That's the idea of, of values. You remind others and yourself. By affirming that torturers or people who engage in certain acts shouldn't travel to the EU, once a year we are reminding Europeans and people outside that we believe in values. And when it comes to the dissidents, the victims of abuse, that's why they risk their lives and health, because they believe in those values. So when somebody, I know friends who've been in jail in, in European countries, when they realize that what they are fighting for isn't something that is a fantasy, but that there is a world outside that pays attention, that believes in the same values, they know why they sacrifice their personal freedom. That's invigorating. Uh, it's the least we can do. And we can do it, and I hope that already next year, 2019, in the, in the autumn, we will see the first Rotten Apple Awards, uh, which means travel bans for human rights violations uh, discussed in Europe. How do you see this idea moving forward? What's, what's your idea then of how it's you know, originally set up? 
Well, uh, what is very encouraging is that in some governments, in some parliaments, like the Netherlands, uh, there is this debate. The Dutch government is bringing together and consulting with leaders around Europe on this already. We've talked to a number of foreign ministries. And since it only takes a few countries to move ahead, uh, we hope it will work uh, relatively soon. We think it, should be, it could be supported by human rights groups, by uh, you know, people who like work on the protection of the rights of journalists, by those who already give positive human rights prices. Bring them all together in a broad coalition for something that is concrete, manageable and not too expensive. And uh, I think it sends a signal 70 years after the creation of the Council of Europe next year that those core values in the European Convention on Human Rights need defending and there are people willing to defend them. And you're thinking, I think, that initially at least it would be maybe confined to, um, to the kind of Eurasian region and perhaps that you would exclude serving politicians. Is that right? Yes. I, I think the key is to, to make things successful. And the power of focus is that when you, for example, focus initially on Eurasia, on all the countries that are in the, in the OSCE area that have accepted the Charter of Paris and its values, it's easier to have the expertise, the credibility, the legitimacy. Uh, if you focus on non-active politicians, I mean, you can exclude just ministers and heads of state and everybody else is, is subject to it. Uh, you also avoid some other debates on the benefits and the need to keep talking and diplomacy. The point is to be effective. If that requires us to be focused, to have a narrow focus, as long as we assert values strongly, it's much better than an abstract debate and nothing ever happens. Great, good. Well, we're, we're at the end of our time, but it's great to end on a, you know, a positive and practical initiative that... Um, suggests a way forward even in this uh, challenging environment for human rights. So we'll follow with interest to see how this um, succeeds and gets picked up. Um, traditionally, at the end of these podcasts, we step back and look at the, um, some of the things that we've been reading. And I don't know if you have any suggestions, whether in the field of human rights or other things that you've been looking at that you'd recommend to our listeners. Well, there there are lots of good books, but one I would really recommend is by Joshua Green, Moral Tribes. Uh, the subtitle is Emotions, uh, Reason and the Gap Between Us and Them. And it is looking at human nature to make an argument how you argue for core values when people have fundamentally different starting points. I mean, it looks at the tribal nature of moral arguments and how, uh, he, I mean, he calls it basically an enlightened form of utilitarianism as a strategy of discussion of these values uh, can lead to hopefully some agreement. It's a very good book uh, and I strongly recommend it to anybody who, who thinks that when we promote human rights we, must, we need to consider human nature. And I think that's one of the frontiers, one of the limitations of a lot of advocacy work. That human nature is limited, our attention is limited, our empathy is limited, we are tribal and yet we can lift ourselves, we can look up to, to, to the stars, we can lift ourselves out of these limitations if we are just capable of using our reason as well as our emotions. Sounds really interesting. And I've been reading, um, also on human rights, I've been reading this book, um, Not Enough. It's called by an American uh, historian and law professor, Samuel Moyne, and he's made a name for himself through a sort of somewhat critical history of the human rights movement. And what he's doing in this book 
is to look at the relationship between human rights and economic inequality. And his argument is that the human rights movement suffers because it hasn't found a way to address issues of inequality so that human rights has sort of been too comfortable with the neoliberal era. And it's kind of an interesting and challenging argument, which I don't 100% agree with, but I think definitely it raises points which advocates of human rights really need to be engaging with, um, and whether the, the way that the human rights movement and, to some degree, the political movement of liberalism that's attached to it um, has allowed itself to seem as the kind of the interest group of an um, internationalist minority that somehow neglects the, the tangible interests of larger parts of the populations in their own countries. So there also, I think, is looking at the kind of narrative um, and moral basis of the appeal of these movements. So also something perhaps worth reading. Anyway, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank it's you. been really interesting and uh, even encouraging. Um, and the, uh, the researcher for ECFR's podcast is uh, Jonathan Hackenbreut, and the editor is Katharina Botel-Azinara.